a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello everyone, Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We're going to get into this week's episode of the Spiked podcast in just one moment. But before that, I just want to let you all know about our Christmas donation drive. Yes, it's that time of year again where the snow is falling and the Christmas lights are twinkling and your favourite pro-freedom, pro-democracy magazine is hassling you to donate money. But as we ask our readers and our listeners and our YouTube viewers to dig deep for us this Christmas to keep us fighting the good fight into 2023, you can rest assured that your money is going to great use. It's been a hell of a year. The world's been turned upside down once again, but Spite has continued to make the case for freedom, for more democracy, for common sense in an increasingly deranging age. And there's a lot that I think we can really be proud of this year. We've continued to grow our magazine, our stable of writers now spanning great new up-and-comers, as well as some real journalistic legends. We also got into the book publishing game this year. We published Joanna Williams's brilliant How Woke One, and we've got another book slated for release next year, which I'll be very excited to announce to you all soon. And we wouldn't have been able to do any of this without you guys, without our generous readers, listeners, and viewers who really do fund our work. Contrary to media rumour, we are not lavishly funded by dark money, although if you do know anyone, please send them my way. If it wasn't for your support and, of course, the incredibly hardworking, tiny team that we have here at Spiked who produce the articles and the podcast and the videos day in, day out, if it wasn't for all of that, then Spiked wouldn't still be here 20 years on, not just surviving, but thriving. I mean, when I first joined Spikes about 10 years ago, we were reaching hundreds of thousands of people a month. We're now reaching millions of people each month, and we really couldn't do that without you and your support. If anything, that support is more important to us than ever, because while Spikes is going from strength to strength in so many ways, you know, we're also coming up against obstacles in this very censorious climate that we find ourselves in that we rail against, just as an example. You know, even as Spike's readership and our traffic climbs, we find that our ad revenue goes down because more and more ad agencies are blacklisting dissenting voices like ours because they come under pressure from all the usual suspects who want a media that only reflects their own views and prejudices back at them. So as we go into 2023, a big focus for us is to really grow the pool of readers and viewers and listeners who donate to us as little or as much as they can in order to, again, keep us writing the articles, making the videos and making the podcasts. And alongside that, we've got a lot of really exciting plans for 2023 as well. New features, new writers, new ideas, just to push our message as far across the globe as is humanly possible. So if you can afford it, please do consider digging deep this Christmas and donating to Spiked. You can do so by going to spiked-online.com forward slash 
donate. And there's also a special offer on at the moment. So to those who donate a one-off donation of £30 or more, you will get one year's membership to Spike Supporters, which is a real steal because it's usually £50 for the year's membership. Spike Supporters, if you've been living under a rock, is where it's at. It's our thriving donor community where you can access all kinds of exclusive perks. You can get access to exclusive events with Spike writers and special guests. Put your questions to people like Brendan O'Neill as well as guests like Rod Liddle or Toby Young and Lionel Shriver. You can access our comment section, which is for Spike supporters only. And of course, you can get discounts to all the books we put out and all the merchandise we sell in our shop. So once again, if you can donate, please do go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate to do so. And I just want to say on behalf of everyone at Spiked, thank you so much for all of your support this year. We really do appreciate it. And we hope you all have a brilliant Christmas and a brilliant new year. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And delighted to be joined again for the second week in a row by Joanna Williams. I wasn't put off last time. <laughs> fantastic. Joe's a Spiked columnist and author of the fantastic How Woke One. So coming up on today's show, corruption in the EU, the coup plot in Germany, the winter strikes and the new definition of the word woman. So Brussels has been rocked by a pretty huge corruption scandal. The former vice president of the European Parliament has um, allegedly been taking bribes from Qatar. She was found to have up to 600,000 euros in cash um, in her home. Her father has been arrested with cash, uh, carrying cash on a train. And there are many other people from the Brussels elite implicated too. Um, at the centre of this scandal is an NGO called um, Fight Impunity, and it's run by a former MEP called Antonio Panzeri. And he too is alleged to have uh, been found with cash in his safe. Um, it was said to be well-stocked, I think is how the, <laughs> how the police described it. Like a well-stocked larder. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Joe, this is a pretty extraordinary scandal. What do you think it says more broadly about the EU? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just shows, I think, the extent to which corruption is absolutely endemic. I mean, this goes right to the very, very top. I mean, these are people who are at the heart of the EU as an institution. And you can't really, you couldn't make up the mm. kind of story that, that's involved here. We're talking suitcases stuffed with cash on a train. And um, it, the whole thing's just got a really kind of dirty underhand feel about it. Um, a couple of things that really stick out to me, though, that I think are worth saying is one is the, again, it feels like we make this point a lot, but the the kind of lack of curiosity mm. of the media in what's gone on here. Um, you kind of think if, if this was different people, a different institution, not the EU, um, the levels of money, of corruption that we're talking about, this would be front page news of every single newspaper. You know, this would be leading our news bulletin. And instead, you kind of have to turn to page 10 or 15, you yeah. know, and you're seeing a, a couple of little paragraphs giving a nodding reference to it. And you have to ask, what is it about these people then uh, that gives this cloak of protection um, mm. from media scrutiny? Why are more questions not being asked? That's the first thing. I mean, the second thing that really strikes me, though, is how uh, you've got people like Kirstie von der Leyen now coming out saying, you know, we have to really crack down on this kind of thing and stop it happening again. But actually, it's 
built into the way the European Parliament works, mm, yeah. it seems. The, the very structure, the way they run their expenses, almost like this tacit relationship that they've got with the people who um, operate in that institution, that, that you don't ask too many questions about the way we go about introducing new laws and we won't ask too many questions about the way that you handle your financial situation. And, and that is corrupt to the core. Mm. And it, it's shocking that this is allowed to continue. Yeah, Tom, it's funny to think that, you know, potentially the UK Prime Minister ousted for party gate or, <laughs> you know, think about some of the other scandals. We've had wallpaper gate. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just on a different you know, it's in a parallel universe almost. No, completely. Although it is interesting as well that people, some people who, to the extent that they are paying attention to this story, are shocked that there is a lot of corruption that goes on in the <laughs> European Union, yeah. um, which is uh, seems finally to have dawned on them. But of course, on the scale that we're talking about is very, very striking. And all the people involved, including members of their extended family, actually seeing the inside of jail cells. So it's pretty stark. But um, just building on what Joe was saying there, it does tell you a lot about the institution mm. itself. Um, it's been interesting in recent days, the response from the European Parliament, from various people trying to kind of deflect from this scandal as much as possible, is in a very EU fashion, they talk about the rules. Yeah. They talk about process. They say that the thing about this fight impunity group was that they were able to take advantage of certain loopholes, which gave them certain measures of access that otherwise they probably shouldn't have. There's discussions about whether or not the ethical processes, the ethical committees are substantial enough or empowered enough in order to deal with them. And, you know, we see similar often when there's some sort of much smaller scale corruption scandal in the UK. The fundamental reason um, that... Brussels is so crooked is because it's so undemocratic. Yeah. There are no natural ways of kind of keeping these uh, Eurocrats honest in the same way that there is. There's not, even though there's more of it on, there's going to be more coverage of it on the continent naturally, there isn't a kind of European wide press in the mm. same way that you would have on a national scale with a properly elected parliament. Um, and even though the European parliament is the sort of the democratic fig leaf, if you like, it does have elected representatives. We all know that it's toothless and therefore it still operates within this system yeah. which in which you can hide from accountability very, very easily. And so the, whenever there's a corruption scandal in the EU or elsewhere, there's always this discussion about we need more kind of external insulated experts in order to, you know, people of good moral standing in order to keep people honest when the issue fundamentally is one of democratic accountability. You know, it's not perfect. For, it's not as if it keeps everyone on the straight and narrow. Naturally, yeah. there will always be corruption. There will always be bad actors and so on and so forth. But that is the thing which really creates that space and that kind of darkness, if you like, in which people can exploit it. And I think it just underlines another one of the, the core critiques of the European Union. The reason that it's so crooked is not necessarily anything about Brussels or about the people involved necessarily. It's just about the fact that there's so much more opportunity for it when you are so insulated from the public in any meaningful sense. Yeah, I mean, when you have an institution whose very purpose is mm. to, you know, stifle democracy, to do politics away from the public. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I think yeah. one of the ironies, though, is they take so much moral high ground in trying yeah. to point the finger of, uh, at uh, regimes that they are quick to label as corrupt, be that in Hungary or in Poland, and try and, uh, as Tom was alluding to, you know, with, with experts and present themselves as mm. being kind of better, purer, less mm. corrupt, uh, precisely for being above politics when it's that lack of politics, that lack of accountability that really opens the door for this corruption. And it's just more broadly on the EU question, it's not been a good couple of years for the EU. The EU has fared fairly, fairly poorly throughout the pandemic. It hasn't even pulled together, you know, when there's war on Europe's doorstep. I mean, Tom, what have you made of that? Well, it's just been a dreadful few years for the EU. But, you know, like the kind of 
undead or like the kind of political zombie, it always finds a way to limp on. I mean, the one yeah. thing that the EU is committed to more uh, than anything else is its own survival. It yeah. finds a way to make things <laughs> work um, and to keep things going on. But of course, that just continues to leave the people of Europe more disenfranchised, um, key decisions affecting their country, completely scored away from them. And also, particularly in the context of this shocking corruption scandal, and in the context of them going after certain member states, particularly to the east in terms of the Central European states, which are treated as, again, these kind of uh, states that are backsliding democratically, that are yeah. becoming increasingly corrupt. You know, to the extent that they could land that argument to begin with is, is questionable. But still, how they're going to be able to do that with any sense of the moral high ground they falsely claim now is really quite questionable. So I just think you can see that kind of that internal argument within the European Union between these kind of restive governments and member states who are trying to push against the European bureaucracy, surely this is going to be a gift to those particular forces. Um, but as it always is with Brussels, it manages to stagger on year there, after year. Are there some positives to be drawn from this, Joe? I mean, one of the things that people from Brussels are um, quite openly worried about is that it will give a boost to anti what they call anti-European forces, well, Eurosceptics. Yeah, well, that could be a positive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that could certainly be a positive. Uh, my, my worry, I guess, is uh, just off the back of what Tom was saying, was that uh, when Ursula von der Leyen, when these people are talking about using this as a way to kind of learn lessons mm. and to um, improve what they're doing to become um, more, um, well, less corrupt, is that, that this will be a way that they can morally rehabilitate themselves off the back of pointing the finger yet again at countries like Hungary and Poland. When they talk about cracking down on corruption, they may use this as a jumping off point, um, but you can guarantee it won't be turning the scrutiny on themselves to any huge extent because it's not in their best interest for them to do that for all the reasons that we've already talked about. So, so it, will, it will ironically, I think, become yet another or potentially could become yet another rod to beat mm. the countries to the east that mm. they, they don't like. Last week, the German government undertook one of the largest terror raids in its modern history. 3,000 police officers swooped in and arrested over 50 suspects. All of these suspects were members of the mysterious Reichsburger movement, who, among other things, call for the return of the German monarchy. Joining me to talk about this curious story is Spike's Germany correspondent, Sabina bepler spahr Sabina, thanks so much for coming on the show. A pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so, first of all, Sabina, can you just tell us a bit about who these Reichsbürger are and, and what do they want? Well, they're an odd sort of uh, uh, group, um, conspiracy theorists, you might say. They um, claim that the modern German state doesn't really legally exist. They were apparently founded around about in the 1980s. They have connections to old um, aristocratic families um, saying that Germany, as it was sort of uh, founded after the First World War, not the Second World War, but the First World War, is an illegal construct. Um, and um, there, some of them at least say they would like to move back to the old kind of uh, monarchical form. They demand that Germany gets uh, the Kaiser back. And they think that would be a much better form of rule. They also believe there is a sort of deep state within the state. Um, our politicians are um, an illegitimate, uh, are illegitimate rulers. Some of them are even engaged in printing their own passports. 
um, and they declare their homes as um, free zones, free of, of the German state influence. And you sort of hinted there that there's a kind of conspiratorial aspect um, to this. I mean, is it fair to say that this movement has grown, um, particularly around the kind of COVID pandemic, um, alongside those other conspiracy theories that people will know about, you know, around um, the New World Order and things like that? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's what we hear and we read that they had a massive boost in the past two or three years. So they've grown from 19,000 uh, um, people at, at the, you know, in the around 2019 to almost over 23,000 um, people within Germany. That These are the official police figures. These are, of course, all estimates. Um, but it was the first time they sort of presented themselves in a bigger way in the public was uh, during the anti-COVID or the anti-lockdown demonstrations. And um, I have to say, even I was quite surprised because I joined one of these demonstrations in August 2020 just to see what was going on. And I was very, very surprised to see so many of their flags and people you know, of Reichsburger seemingly coming from all corners. So um, they seem to have gotten a bit of a boost through that, through the kind of authoritarian handling of this um, COVID um, pandemic, which uh, seemed to confirm their ideas that the state was acting against people's interest and was doing things which was which were very much illegal. Now, they, uh, these people have been arrested on suspicion of plotting essentially a coup to overthrow the German government, install their one of their own as um, essentially the Kaiser of, of Germany. I mean, how realistic um, do you think that is? Do you think it really warrants the kind of uh, response we've seen from the authorities and, and and also the sort of political response. Well, it was actually twenty three people, I think, now which have uh, which are in prison or which are being investigated and have been arrested. No, I don't think um, uh, that. I think it was definitely an overreaction, and I'm not the only one to think that. So there've been more and more articles coming through, even within the mainstream press. We've had um, quite a senior former judge who's just published an article in Der Spiegel saying they were not a threat to the state as it was presented to us. So it's odd to think that a, a group of people, even if there's 23,000 sympathizers, would be able to take over the German state. Um, they can, of course, um, as every strange group, uh, conspiratorial group, they can cause damage, you know, so there's no doubt about that. So there was talks about them. Um, uh, attacking uh, an electricity grid. And they can, of course, also cause damage to individual policemen. So we've had policemen who have been attacked and who have been killed, actually, by, by individual synthesizers of that kind of movement. Um, many of them do have weapons, so they can cause harm. But the idea that they could have overthrown the German state, I think, by now, is pretty much even consensus that that was not the case, that that was never really on the cards. So in whose interest do you think it is to perhaps um, overplay this this threat? Because it hasn't, it, it, in a sense, it's been, it, they've tried to drag in, the German government has tried to drag the AFD into this to say that they have some sort of culpability or some sort of connection to the Reichsburger. Do you think it's it's a kind of um, almost a quite an authoritarian ploy from the from the government to suggest that this is, this is bigger than it might, than it really is? 
Yeah, well, I mean, this AFD thing came in after uh, after the whole action. So um, at first it was only directed against, or only against Reisberger. And then because one of the senior people who was arrested, um, in fact, a judge, a female judge, who was a former MP of the um, uh, AFD, because of that connection, people have then been saying, and some quite senior politicians have been saying, that... Um, this uh, indicates that the AFD is the breeding ground for these kind of right-wing groups. And then said, well, we need to... So there have actually been talks about banning the AFD. So we've had the, uh, the minister-president of um, North Rhine-Westphalia saying we really have to look at a complete ban of this party because it is spreading that kind of ideology. Um, and, of course, when people say these things, uh, there is... It's hard not to see that there is a certain political interest in it because they've always had the AFD as their main enemy. So they've been anti-populist. The AFD has always been a bit of a trouble and a problem. And there've been a lot of talks about the AFD gaining support in these difficult times we're going through. So energy crisis, people feeling the squeeze, the inflation. And um, we have some elections coming up, local elections, and there is a very real fear of the AFD gaining ground again. So surveys show that they are, are have picked up. And um, so, you know, there is, it's very hard not to get the impression that there is a certain interest in going against your political enemies by using the force of law and by making that connection between Reisberger and the AFD. And one one of the words that has um, come up a lot um, in relation to this is, is is talk of Germany's defensive democracy or Wehrhafte Demokratie. I wonder if you could explain what that means and and kind of its authoritarian implications. So this is a concept which goes back uh, to the end of the Second World War after fascism, when Ger Germany was uh, when democracy was being. Um, uh, uh, reintroduced, let's say, to Germany. And it was a concept which um, goes back to the Allies and, of course, local Germans who, who said, well, you know, the, the German people have shown that they are not, maybe not the best of Democrats. And if we do want to, uh, democracy is the only way forward, we need to ensure that democracy is secured against its enemies. So saying that um, we can't, we can't allow the enemies of democracy to use democratic means to overthrow democracy. That was basically the idea behind it. The, the basic idea behind it, of course, is a very deep distrust of the people, saying, you know, normally you would say democracy is the best guarantee against radical ideas flourishing because you would trust normal people's ability to, uh, you know, to, 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 to make sense of, of the world and to say, well, we don't want to go for, for weird ideas. Um, but here they were saying, no, we need a, some uh, more checks and balances. And that this gave the German state legally the right to move to go against extremists of all kinds. It's important to say it's not actually being used only against right-wing extremists, but actually against left-wing extremists too. So one of the first parties which was banned under the um, Wehrhafte Demokratie um, notion was actually the KPD, the commun communists in the 1950s. Um, yes, and whenever a politician says these are people who go against the principles of the federal state, um, then um, that you would have the right to to ban them and to say that you know they they don't um, comply to our democratic rules. Um, the problem is that, of course, it can be used. It's very it's a very vague concept. 
you know so it's not only being used against people who use arms and storm the you know the actual parliament so you don't need actual violence but even just you know um speech saying you know we we questioning the legality of germany's system as the reichsburger are doing uh, are uh, as the, as is the case with the reichsburger um and then you'd be uh, you'd be allowed to ban a group which is of course a very very authoritarian way of approaching a problem rather than um you know challenging political ideas you use the power of the state to go against them um it's basically protecting democracy from the people that's really what it is that's a really great summary um sabina thank you very much so um britain is on strike <laughs> the royal, effectively, the public sector at least. Um, the Royal College of Nurses have announced uh, one of their first sort of nationwide strikes in in history. The RMT is on strike with the long-running uh, kind of rail dispute. And the Communication Workers Union, um, the postal workers, are also on strike. Um, Joe, what have you made of this kind of um, simmering winter of discontent, if we dare call it that. <laughs> well, I think Brendan on Spike this week is absolutely right to point out that in comparison to the real winter of discontent, uh, 1979, the days lost to strike. I mean, they're, they're trivial in yeah. comparison. The numbers that we're talking overall, um, it, it is. it feels very inconvenient if you're caught up in it, uh, as I was having problems getting from Canterbury into London today. But in the grand scheme of things, this is not a huge um, kind of general strike across the whole country going on for months. And I think the point I would make is that uh, the workers who are on strike, as far as I'm concerned, do dis- do um, deserve a pay rise. I yeah. mean, that that's the bottom line. They they deserve to have more money. Um, the many people are, are talking about the figures that people are asking for with a kind of shock horror. Mm. But I think we've got to remember that with inflation running at 11 percent. Um, you know, you need 11% pay rise just to be standing still, exactly. just to be at the level at which your income um, was, what, what you could buy with your income this time last year. You need an 11% mm. pay rise to have no improvement in your living conditions whatsoever, simply to stand still. So I think that's really got to put the size of the pay rises into perspective. Having said that, you know, uh, my heart really does go out to people who have been waiting a long time for operations, perhaps. Um, and then have been phoned up by the hospital and, and said, you know, that heart surgery you were waiting for, you, the chemotherapy treatment you were waiting to start, that is going to be cancelled. That is a very, very, I mean, that's that's not an inconvenience like a missed train or, a, mm-hmm. a, you know, standing around at the platform in, in the cold. That is a really, really big problem. And clearly this is coming off the back of two years of disruption to the NHS, yeah. um, postal services, every aspect of our lives because of lockdown. So I think it feels a lot more um, disruptive than it might have been otherwise. You know, I think the big problem is that it it feels to us that we are paying a lot of money into the NHS. You know, when I buy my train ticket in the morning, it feels as if it is very expensive. It is very Mm. expensive. And I think one of the reasons why that becomes then difficult to match up with the demand for a pay rise is because all of this money that we're putting into these services seems, well, it seems like an awful lot of it is kind of drifting off elsewhere. It's not going into the pockets of nurses Mm, um, and it's not going necessarily into the pockets of train drivers. If you look, I think, at the amount of money the NHS spends on managers, 
bureaucrats, equality and diversity officers who all had the luxury of working from home during the pandemic, unlike the nurses. And even I have to say, unlike many of the GPs, you know, the nurses are not well paid. I think the nurses do deserve the money. They were on the front line in the hospitals during the pandemic. But we also need to start asking about the extra money that is going into the NHS that is not going into the pockets of nurses and doctors. I think people might have seen on on Twitter someone posting the NHS manager of lived experience. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) On like 80k or something. Yeah, something always, always these ridiculous inflated Mm -hmm. salaries. Um, Yeah, the NHS is an interesting case because it's getting more money. There are more doctors than before the pandemic, um, but less patients are being treated. So I think people will find that a great mystery and will want to know why that money Mm. isn't finding its way to nurses and the like. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it's it's been interesting also because I agree with um, much of what Joe said there. I think what's also interesting is the way this debate is being had out as well. So as you say, you have a kind of complete ignorance of the squeeze on people's living standards that even, you know, precedes the current kind of acute crisis that we find ourselves in, being in the midst of this protracted, you know, biggest squeeze on living standards since the Napoleonic Wars, as everyone mm. says. This is, people had to put up with a lot even before we got to kind of crisis point, which is, yeah. I think, a big part of the reason why there's been quite surprising levels of public support and durable public support, all those questions now about whether particularly with the rail strikes that's going on the term we shall see is because of the fact that I think that um, you know people have a sense in their own lives of how difficult things are quite immediately and also over the past 10 years or so it's harder to kind of land these attack lines in the way um, it would have been easier to previously it is always interesting as well that whenever a kind of strike comes around how particularly the kind of rights, the way they talk about this seems to be the inverse of where they would talk about many other different things. So for instance, you know, they would come out in hives if you talked about regulating a company one more inch than they would like you to. And yet when it comes to dictating how trade unions can organise themselves, yeah. the threshold they have to meet for a ballot, whether or not they have to maintain a minimum service, which seems like the sort of thing which could be in the offing in the new year for railway workers and so on and so forth. You know, suddenly, suddenly you flip that entirely on its head, you know, completely in favour of freedom apparently, except for when it comes to people's ability to collectively bargain and organise. And some of the um, restrictions that are coming down that, that, that are being mooted, I mean, I've, I don't think Rishi Sunak's really got the stomach for the fight for anything, let alone yeah. this, but talking about things like requiring the railways to run a minimum service, which is effectively compelling people to cross picket lines. These yeah. are very mm-hmm. significant restrictions on the right to strike and in the context of some pretty already very restrictive by European standards restrictions on um, trade union organisation. So it's just been, it's been interesting how you see them kind of try to revisit a lot of the old playbook. Yeah. At least at least up until this moment, potentially things will change with the strikes over Christmas. It not landing in the way that it would previously because I guess people in their own lives and their own communities can see the if not those specific sectors and how that's impacted, but just in life in general being so much tougher right now. Than it has been. Definitely. Finally, Joe, one one um, line from the government that definitely didn't land was the suggestion that anyone striking was on the side of Putin uh, from uh, Nadeem <laughs> together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think people are well and truly seeing through that line. I mean, not not only in relation to the strikers, but even in relation to the fuel crisis. For, I mean, the high cost of, of fuel, mm. high cost of food prices. I, it seems to be the standard line trotted out by the government now in response to everything. And I think people are not stupid. People see through that and people are aware that these are problems that that run an awful lot deeper um, than the war in Ukraine. Mm. Now, finally, let's turn to um, the Cambridge Dictionary, which has changed its definition of the word woman and of the word man. um, But the woman one gets more attention for obvious reasons. Um, Not only do we have the original definition still of adult human female, 
but it now includes references to people who identify as women. Joe, what have you made of this? I mean, Orwellian is the kind of word that springs to mind, doesn't it? Absolutely, because I mean, what, what this means, the dictionary is supposed to be uh, the, the kind of the, the ultimate reference point as to where you go to to um, well, literally find out the meaning of words. And uh, it's also a useful point in an argument people will throw at you while mm. look this up in the dictionary because they assume it's this very objective, kind of neutral uh, kind of a font of, of, of meaning, if you like. I've, I've absolutely lost track of the number of times people have said to me over the years, oh, you know, go and look feminism up in a dictionary. You, you, you clearly just don't know what feminism means as if you're going to go to a dictionary, you're going to look these words up and you're ah, right, okay, this is what <laughs> the uh, kind of the meaning that comes down from God suggests. But I mean, the word woman in particular is is so contested. We know this at, at the moment. The, the question that people throw at MPs is, is mm. can you define what a woman is? So for the dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary in this instance, but Merriam-Webster's done it in the US before then, to come down with this incredibly ideologically loaded definition of a woman as as identifying or living as as female, um, it's, it's taking a side. It's not neutral. It's not objective. It's taking a side in a particular debate. And the argument that's the, that the dictionary compilers, if you mm. like, are using, or those supporting the dictionary uh, compilers, is that it's reflecting yeah. common usage. But uh, I mean, I call bullshit on that mm. because it, it's not common usage. You know, I kind of think if you asked a hundred random people in the street, what is a woman? What does woman mean? They're not going to give you the spiel about, oh, it's somebody who identifies as or lives as female. They know that a woman is an adult human female. So when they talk about in common usage, what they mean is it's used by woke institutions. Yeah. It's the people who are writing the equality and diversity mm. charters. So then you create this kind of vicious circle of woke people reinforcing their own ideas with mm. each other uh, in this kind of circle of, of mutual backslapping and reinforcement. But it, it's, I think it should really concern us. Um, I mean, it, it is Orwellian and ultimately you change the meaning of words like that. You do change the way we think and, and see the mm. world. Yeah, I mean, obviously, prior to this, the trans movement has come up with a lot of its own words, um, tried to stop us from using words like um, breastfeeding or mother mm -hmm. or <laughs> or pregnant woman and things like that. But, th but this is altogether more kind of sinister. Yeah, and it, that, it feeling like that kind of final rubber stamp for what these activists, in a very kind of elitist fashion, this is about, you know, the attempts to kind of change the language in which we use, um, almost to change the language so as to alter how we think about, about and to kind of circumscribe the debate in the way mm. that Joe's been describing. Um, it's, it's not been about, again, common usage and argument had out in society. It's about putting various elite institutions under a level of moral pressure and shaming in order for them to give in to your particular ideology. Mm. So it is very sinister in, in that sense. You know, you note that it's not just the Cambridge Dictionary as well. Merriam-Webster previously in the US has altered their definitions and so on. And, you know, we we often use the word Orwellian. It's thrown around a lot these days, but there's no other word really for it when you're yeah. talking about this level of attempt to uh, uh, thought control via control of the language and the meaning of words. There's no other way to discuss it. And the thing is, the thing about this this movement, such as it is, is that it always kind of goes down this particular path, you know, the kind of discussion around changing people's birth certificates yeah. even, which is essentially a form of 
compelling the authorities to lie about what this child, when they first appeared, what their, you know, obvious observable sex is, you know, to be able to change that. And I think it's one of those things where the more that it kind of goes down this particular track, the more you see that it is a fundamentally elitist movement. It's not about common parlance. It is about what a very small group of activists and a very cowed, or in many cases now convinced elite, have decided you should think. And so that's where we're at, it feels like, with this issue. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.